Well, if you would, turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Is my mic on? Hello? Test, test. Hello, hello, hello. There we go. All right. Awesome. Sorry. That's why you test the mic before worship starts. Exodus chapter 15. We are making our way as a church through the book of Exodus. Last week we saw the parting of the Red Sea, the crucial moment of Israel's life, the saving moment, the moment that they would always sing about, the moment they would always talk about, the moment they would always look back to. And I wonder, what is that moment in your life? Or what are those moments? What are those pivotal moments where everything changed? Today, what we're going to see is that at that moment, Israel... We've read read Exodus 14, where we get it in normal prose form. And now we have Exodus 15, where it's covered in song. Because as soon as Israel is rescued, she sings. And so I would even ask, what is the what is the soundtrack of your life? What are those when those when those pivotal moments have happened? Is there a song or is there something that accompanies those moments? What do you jam out to in the car? Right. Music has an important influence over us. Music has an important effect on our hearts. And so it's interesting that. As soon as Israel is rescued on the other side of the Red Sea, they begin singing. I think that's important. And so today we're going to read from Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Let's give attention to God's word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. This is my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send them out. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. 
The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray together. God in heaven, would you make the reading and the hearing of your word effective? Lord, would you work wonders? We know that you can do that. We know, Lord, that you worked wonders in Israel's day. God, we pray that you would work wonders in our own hearts. Would you divide the hard waters of our heart? God, would you show us the life that you have for us in Jesus? And would you teach us to sing? Sing well, sing rightly, sing for your glory. Oh, Lord, would you captivate us and and help us to adore you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back to the moment, the, the moment that happened in the chapter before this. Let's go back with Moses and the people of Israel. And let's, let's stand on the, the western shore of, excuse me, on the eastern shore of the Red Sea. I want you to imagine that you're standing there watching the waters wash up. And it's washing up the bodies of your enemies, the Egyptians. And then we're going to flash back to just 24 hours prior to that moment. Just 24 hours prior to that, Israel is encamped in peace. Uh, They're on the western shore of the Red Sea. And they're waiting. And then they see Egypt. Then they see the might of Egypt thundering down on them. And they panic. And they cry out sarcastically, bitterly to Moses and to the Lord. They cry out, why? What's going to happen? What have you done to us, Moses? And what does Moses tell them? He says, be silent. Do not fear. Stand firm. God will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And then it happens, right? From the eastern Sure, a wind starts blowing. And as the wind blows, you can imagine standing on the western shore, watching it on the opposite shore coming towards you, this wind just casting water out of the way, causing this deep water to pile up like towering walls on either side. And right through the middle of this huge lake, for lack of a better word, Bigger than our Great Lakes, but right down the middle is this dry highway for all two million Israelites to walk across. And walk across they do. 
And then, once they get to the other side, or as they're getting there, the Egyptians start in to pursue. Driven by their own pride, driven by their own lust for power, driven by the hardening hand of God, they pursue the Israelites into the sea. And it happens again. Moses stretches out his hand, and those towering walls of water collapse. They collapse right on top of the mightiest military on the planet. Can you imagine, as the, as the dawn breaks, right, as the sun rises, can you imagine standing there on the seashore as the Israelites? How would you process what you had just seen? How would you process a smoking pillar of fire blocking your enemies? How would you process water moving out of your way? How would you process seeing the bodies of your captors lying there on the sand in front of you? What would you do? Israel sings. They sing to God in worship. And so this morning as we look at this, my points will just be slightly different uh, than what you see on the screen, but they're a true enough guide. We've already covered the events of the Red Sea, so I want to take this song and I want to and I want to look at it from this perspective. What does it say about why we sing? What does it say about worship in general? This is the oldest song in the Bible. It's the first song in the Bible. And so I think it tells us a lot about worship, what worship is and what worship isn't, what we do in worship and what we don't do. But the main idea is this. We sing, we worship because we have a great redeemer. And by great, I don't mean he's just like, like we mean great, like, man, he's a really great guy. But I mean unique There's none like him. He's a step above the rest. No one comes close. We have a great redeemer. And that redeemer saves his people freely, of his own accord, and fully. And even that idea would have been contrary to the notion of of ancient gods, the way that uh, the ancient world worshipped their gods, is you did whatever you could to get your god's attention. We see this in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 18 when a man named Elijah, who is a prophet of the one true God, uh, is facing off against 400 prophets of Baal. There's a little contest going on. And Elijah is a nice enough gentleman that he lets the prophets of Baal go first, right? If they can get their God to respond, then Baal is true. But if that doesn't work and Elijah's God responds, then Elijah's God is true. And so the prophets of Baal go first and they, they begin this very lengthy ceremony. They're dancing around, they're babbling, they're yelling at the top of their lungs And nothing's happening. And so then, as the day wears on, Elijah actually starts making fun of them, right? He says, hey, maybe you guys should yell louder. Maybe your God's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's gone on a trip, right? Just keep shouting and he'll show up, right? And so then, the prophets of Baal, they actually start cutting themselves, right? 
Uh, they, they start bleeding themselves in an attempt, this is what you did, in an attempt to get your God's attention. And it still doesn't work. And then Elijah takes his turn. And what Elijah does is he prays. And he asks God to prove himself based on his faithfulness, based on his own character. He doesn't holler, he doesn't yell, he doesn't dance, he doesn't cut himself, he doesn't have to get God's attention. He simply says, Lord, would you act for the glory of your name? And that's what I mean when I say that we have a a great redeemer who saves his people freely. I mean that. That we don't have to beat the door down. That he that. That, that we respond to what he has done. He doesn't respond to us. We don't ring the bell and wait for him to show up. He shows up and we respond in worship. We have a great redeemer. We sing because we have a great redeemer who saves freely and fully all the way to the end. He doesn't leave a job undone. We're going to see all those things develop as we go through this passage. So the first point is this. Worship focuses or dwells on who God is. Worship, first and foremost, is about God and who he is, his character. That's what worship ought to focus on. Here's where we see that primarily in verses 1 through 3, that you see it through the whole song. Moses says, he writes for the people and they sing together, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously or he is highly exalted. He is gloriously glorious. That's, that's, that's kind of what it would read like if you were reading, if you were to read it right in the Hebrew. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. What Moses is saying is there's, there's no one better. You can't rise any higher. Think about the way that you introduce someone that you really admire, someone you really like. You say, what a, what a great Woman, she is. What a great person. I really admire his blank, right? That's what Moses is doing. He's saying, when he says he is gloriously glorious, he's saying, you can't top my God. You can't top Yahweh. Why? He is my strength and my song. Now, there's two words that don't really seem to go together. What do strength and song have to do with each other? Well, my strength, what, what Moses is saying, what we sing in worship when we sing about God's character is that our own strength is inadequate. Our own strength really isn't strength at all. Our own strength is impotence. That when it, when it comes to the major issues in life, when it comes to the big enemies, my own strength accomplishes nothing. I am... I am a weakling in the face of real adversaries. And so I need the Lord to be my strength. And because he is my strength, he's my song. He's the one who makes me sing. So the old hymn says, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone from the first to the last hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, right? This is personal. So, so it's not just, he's not just the God of Israel. He's my God. He's mine. 
And he's my father's God. We have a God. We worship a God who works through families. Just this is what we've seen this morning in baptism, right? That he is Chad and Molly's God. And we look forward to the day and pray for the day and hope for the day when Hallie will say, he is my God. Right? We have a God who works through families, who works through the generations. And then Moses says something interesting. He says, the Lord is a man of war. Your translation may say, the Lord is a warrior. Now that that doesn't quite jive, does it, with the way that maybe we usually think about God? And maybe it's just a, and maybe it's a cultural thing that we're... We're just not comfortable with the idea of a God who carries out, who has warlike tendencies, a God who fights for his people. That sounds like the God of some other religion, but surely that's not the God of Christianity. I mean, after all, what what about the New Testament? Jesus wasn't a warrior, was he? (laughs) He was, right? What is... What does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? Jesus goes to war. He goes to war against the effects of sin in the world. How? What are you talking about, Kevin? I'm talking about healing paralyzed people. I'm talking about restoring sight to the blind. I'm talking about casting out demons. When Jesus shows up right away, he asserts his rights as king. As the warrior king who will put sin under his boot. He is tired of evil. He is tired of its oppression in the world. And he has come to set people free from it. So yes, Jesus, the Lord, is a warrior. In fact, right when we get to the book of Revelation in chapter 19, we see Jesus' return. And how does he return? Riding on a white horse. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. The armies of the saints ride behind him and tattooed on his thigh, right? King of kings and Lord of lords. There's none better. There's no one higher. There's no one more powerful than he. The Lord is a warrior. Here's what this means for us. And here's why it's so important that we don't lose this theme. If the Lord is not a warrior... If God does not have wrath against sin, if God doesn't move against his enemies, then there is no hope in our salvation. If the Lord is not a warrior, then we have a powerless God who sees the injustice in the world. He sees sin in the world, but he can't do anything about it or he won't do anything about it. But that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a warrior who will put his enemies down. He will defeat those enemies that stand against him. And that means, too, people who stand against the Lord. That if you live your life in constant opposition and rejection of the one true God, then you will face his wrath. The Lord is a warrior. Kevin, what about the cross? What about grace and peace? It's a good question. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament. How do we 
begin to reconcile the, uh, the grace of God available to us in Christ with this idea that the Lord is a warrior. 1 Corinthians 16, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15. I'm just going to start reading at the end of verse 54. Paul is talking about the resurrection. He's talking about the empty tomb. And here's what he says. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord is a warrior. Jesus is a warrior because he gets victory. Who does he get victory over? Not, not merely human enemies. He gets victory over sin and death and the grave. That's what we see happening in Revelation. The enemies that Jesus puts down at the cross are not merely mortal enemies. They're our greatest enemies. He, on the cross, he puts down our sin. He gives his own life for it so that we don't have to face it. So that we can be forgiven. And then in the empty tomb, he puts down death. So that when we die physically, we can almost laugh. We can say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because Jesus has swallowed it up in his, in his victory. He has conquered death and the grave. That's the kind of warrior that Jesus is. We have a Lord, we have a God who fights for us. And just like Israel, we just stand and be silent, right? We just say, okay, Lord, you're my strength and my song. You handle that. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to stand back here, right? That's all you. I'm going to stand back here and just hide behind you, right? If that's, that may sound cowardly to you, that is the Christian life, friend. Hide behind Jesus, and let him, let him fight the battle. It's his anyway. You don't have the strength to conquer your enemies. Jesus does. The Lord is a warrior. We worship because of who God is. We sing because God does not take evil lightly. He is not incompetent, nor is he impotent. He sees sin, he sees evil, and he is compelled by his holy majesty to do something about it. So, what do we do with this? First, if worship is about who God is, then it is not about who we are. And so we need to move from our preoccupation with self and even our, our preoccupation with our preferences to a preoccupation with God. We need, in worship... When we're gathered together in here, we want to focus more on who God is than on who we are and what we want and what we like, right? We want to move from a preoccupation with self to a God focus, from a self focus to a God focus. We're not at a concert, right, where the musicians are on stage, the, the performers, and we're, just, and we're just watching them and listening to them. No, this is a worship service. We are engaged in song together. 
And we're in a throne room, and we want our eyes and our hearts to be drawn to the king on the throne. So, so what if we prayed before we came into worship, which is actually why we try to prepare our hearts for worship, just briefly. But what if when we left home on our way to church, we prayed beforehand what Moses prayed on Mount Sinai. Lord, show me your glory. When I get... When I get to the house today, when I get to church today and I'm gathered with my brothers and sisters, would you show us your glory? Help us to adore you, to see you for who you are. Help us to behold your majesty and be captivated by your goodness. Worship dwells on who God is. But it's also fixated on what God has done. Right? These kind of go hand in hand. God's character is expressed in the way that he acts. And so we, we worship God for who he is, but we also worship him for what he has done. And in this story, what has God done? He's conquered the greatest army on the face of the planet. He's drowned them all in the Red Sea. So there's a, there's a story uh, that kind of goes around and takes different forms. Uh, the one that I'm about to share comes from a guy named um, Donald Bridge. And here's, here's how it goes. There's a, um, there's a visiting preacher preaching to a congregation, and this congregation uh, is responsive, shall we say. So that means they're not white, um, right? They give a little bit of feedback, just like Jack did. That was good, Jack, feeding back, right? They give feedback to the preacher, okay? And so this preacher reads the story of the crossing of the Red Sea, and a man in the congregation says, Praise the Lord, what a mighty miracle. He walked all his children across on dry land through the deep water. And the preacher is what we would call a liberal preacher. He doesn't take the Bible seriously. He doesn't take the miracles in the Bible seriously. And so he says, well, actually, it, uh, it wasn't really a miracle. Um, this was probably a part of the Red Sea where the water was really shallow. And so it was probably like a, a marsh or a swamp. And, and, they, and they didn't go through deep water. They just went through water that was about six inches deep. You know, so I made the liberal guy sound like a nerd. So they just went across through water that was six inches deep. This guy didn't miss a beat. He says, praise the Lord for a mighty miracle. He drowned all those Egyptians in six inches of water. <laughs> if we take Moses seriously, listen to all the language that he uses. Listen to the way that he talks about God's mighty acts. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he threw into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. This is why, this is why poetry is good, right? Because it takes uh, normal words and kind of sets them on fire by the way that, that it's arranged. You sent out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. These people knew a thing or two about stubble. The Egyptians had made them gather stubble to try and make, make bricks with. Now it's the Egyptians who are like stubble, being consumed by God's fury. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Right? Not that God has, really has a nose, but picturing God just almost just snorting 
and, and blowing the waters out of the way and, and building them up on the sides like heaps of stone. The deeps congealed. When I read that, I think of my grandmother's congealed salad. Right? Is it, is it a solid? Is it a liquid? No, it's an edible gel. Right? Um, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. So the, the deepest part of the waters just solidify so that Israel can go through. And then... We hear the enemy, right, and his dauntless pursuit, his desire, very short. I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, right? Egypt is determined to get Israel back. That's what drives him into the sea. And what does God do? He blows with his wind and the sea covers them back up. God is majestic in holiness, right? Which leads us to the rhetorical question, who is like you, O Lord, in verse 11? Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you? And of course, the answer is no one. No one is majestic in holiness, right? Holiness means God's uniqueness, his otherness, his set-apartness. No one is majestic like God in holiness. No one can work wonders the way that God does. Who, who could divide the sea? It's interesting that uh, the chief god in the Egyptian mindset was the god Ra. And he was the god of the sun. And so every, every sunrise he was born and every sunset he died. And so he, it was this constant cycle of death and resurrection. But the sunrise, right, that was the moment of his power. And yet it was at sunrise that the waters collapse on the Egyptians. As Ra begins taking the sky... He is powerless to save his worshipers. And Yahweh's worshipers stand on the shore triumphantly. Who is like the Lord? Who is like the God of Israel? And then you have verse 13. It's, it's almost a, a theme verse for the whole song. It could actually be a theme verse for the whole of the Christian life. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Let's unpack that a little bit. You have led in your steadfast love. That word steadfast love means loyalty, right? Some translations even translate it loyal love. If you have read the Jesus Storybook Bible, she translates it the never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. God's steadfast love. Love, the love that doesn't go anywhere. It's that love that motivates him to lead his people. It's that love that motivates him to save his people, his redeemed. I once heard a, a preacher say to, that redemption means being uh, restored to your original purpose, finding your purpose in the world. That's not what it means to be redeemed. To be redeemed means to be bought back. It means to be brought into possession, right? And so what Moses is saying is, you're Love leads those whom you have bought for yourself. We have been bought by God through the blood of the Lamb, and He leads by His loyal, unfailing, steadfast love. So what does that mean for our worship? It means I need to be driven by what God has done, and not simply by how I feel. And I think that, that becomes... Uh, a difficulty, particularly in worship, particularly in where music is concerned. 
usually how I feel drives my worship, right? So if I'm just not feeling it today, yeah, I'm not going to worship. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we ignore our feelings. Our feelings are like dashboard indicators, okay? Uh, they, they come up, they're the lights on the dashboard that come up and, and let you know that either everything's going okay or something needs to be fixed, right? That there's a problem. But, that, but, but my dashboard indicators don't drive my car. They give me some indication. My feelings may give me some indication of what's going on. And actually, if you've driven older cars like I have, your dashboard indicators may not always be the most helpful things, right? Uh, there may not be a problem. It's just on, okay? Um, my fe- I, don't, I don't need to be led by my feelings. I need truth to lead my feelings, right? If Israel, in this case, were to be led by her feelings, she would be led back into captivity, Because she was afraid and she was panicky, right? But the truth of what God has done, that should speak to our feelings, right? We should be able to take our hearts in hand and say, no, 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 this is the truth. This is what God has done. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. That's what we ought to do in worship. Worship is not leading with our feelings, but rather us leading our feelings before the throne, right? I don't ignore my feelings any more than I ignore my children. I don't think I ignore my children, right? But that doesn't mean that my children lead my home. They don't set my priorities. They don't say this is what we're going to do or not going to do, right? I give them attention, but they are not what sets the, uh, sets the tempo, right? In the same way, our feelings are important Uh, We don't want to ignore them or quiet them, but we do need to lead them. We need to lead our hearts. And so good worship is not fixated on my feelings. Rather, my feelings need to be fixated on God, on the God that I worship, and what he has done to defeat my enemies and save me. And then finally, at the end of the song, worship compels us to trust God for more. Worship focuses us on the future. In verse 14, it's interesting. The way that it uses language is it talks about things that are going to happen in the future as if they've already happened. It says the peoples have heard. Well, guess what? It just happened. Word traveled pretty slowly in the ancient world, okay? Like nobody was there with a Twitter feed. Nobody was there taking shots and posting them to Facebook. Like it just happened. And so, no, the enemies haven't heard yet, but they will, right? It's a foregone conclusion. And so Moses sings as if the future is already happened, as if the future is already passed, as if it's a guarantee. And that's what, and that's what worship enables us to do. It doesn't just look past. It doesn't just look to the past. But it also helps us look to the future and trust God for more. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. These are all the enemy nations that you would face on your way into the promised land. Now we're, we're going around the back. So the Philistines, we won't meet them yet. But we are going to meet Edom. We're going to meet Moab and Edom and then the Canaanites, right? And so Moses, they they go through the song in the order in which they would be encountered geographically. 
And each one of them is in fear and dread of the Lord. And we actually find this to be true when Israel does get there. Uh, some of them want to go to battle and some of them are just still as stone, right? They leave the Israelites alone. Terror and dread fall upon them. What does all this mean for us? It, it means that the future, yes, the enemy's past have been defeated, but so will enemy future. There is really nothing to fear if you belong to the Lord. Whatever may come your way, you do not have to fear because the Lord is a warrior and he fights for his people. He says, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. So, so not just will the Lord defeat the future enemies, but he will bring them all the way into the promised land. And he's not just dropping them off at the doorstep. No, he brings them in and he plants them. He cultivates them in his promised land, in his inheritance. So even though the battle was fought and won at the Red Sea, the inheritance still has yet to be gained. A future inheritance waits for those who trust in the Lord. And likewise for the Christian. The battle was won at Calvary. But the future inheritance still waits. It's not yet inherited. There's a future yet to grasp. There's a finish line to cross. And so when we sing, when we come into worship, we are compelling our hearts to trust God more fully and to yearn in a deeper way for his work. Let's close with this. Turn to the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 15. This is John's uh, vision of the end. And it's interesting what he sees in verse 2 of chapter 15. John says, I saw what appeared to be a sea, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. What does Moses see? He sees a sea. And he sees the redeemed standing next to it, and they're singing. And what are they singing? The song of Moses. The song of Moses becomes the song of the redeemed. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Our song is the same. The song of Moses is the song of the redeemed. It's the song of those who have trusted in Christ, those who have been rescued by the Red Sea of his blood and are walking under God's mighty hand to the place where he dwells. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to worship a right? God, to dwell on your character, on who you are, and as we focus on who you are as the, the warrior, 
the highly exalted one in whom there is no other, with whom there is no other. There's no comparison. Lord, would you also help us to worship in light of what you've done, to fixate on your wonderful deeds and salvation, how you've rescued us from our slavery to sin. And then, God, would you push us forward as we worship, compel us into the vision of the future, that we too will one day be gathered by the sea. We too one day will pick up our tambourines and harps like Moses and Miriam did, and we will sing. We will sing the song of the redeemed, that you are a glorious and good God who works wonders, who saves his people all the way to the end. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.